Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi there, welcome to The Tents. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. I make no secret that the Botanical Method Aquarium is unlike almost any other approach to aquarium keeping currently practiced. Not better, mind you, not the coolest, well, possibly, <laughs> just different. To praise all the many reasons why this approach is so different could literally take years. Oh, wait, it has, like like eight of them to be exact. If you take this approach, you simply, literally, need to clear your mind of any preconceived notions that you have about what an aquarium should look like or function like. The aesthetics are unlike anything that you've seen before in the hobby, and the function is very different than what we've come accustomed to work with in the hobby. And over the many years that I've been playing with botanicals, my approaches and processes have changed and evolved based on my own experiences and those of you, our community. The way I approach botanical method aquariums today is definitely a bit different than I have, you know, approached them previously. And that's pretty cool. It's the byproduct of years of playing with this stuff, modifying techniques, philosophies, and approaches based upon actual practices. My practices are constantly changing, persistently evolving. Here are a few examples of the evolution of my practice and my approaches over the years and how they've changed. Well, let's start with substrate. As a regular consumer of our content, you likely know of my obsession with varying compositions and what I call enhancement of substrate. You know, adding mixes of various materials to create different aesthetics and function. Now, over the years, I've developed a pretty healthy interest in replicating the function and the form of substrates found in the wild aquatic habitats of the world. What we had worked with in years past in the hobby was simply based upon what the manufacturers had available. I felt that although these materials were, you know, are overall great, there was a lot of room for improvement and some evolution based upon what types of materials are found in actual wild aquatic habitats. My evolution was based upon really studying the wild habitats and asking myself how I can replicate their function in my tanks. And a big chunk of this understanding came from studying how substrate materials in the wild aggregate and accumulate, where they come from, and what they do for the overall ecosystem, the aquatic ecosystem that is. I'm fascinated with this stuff partially because substrates and the materials which comprise them are so intimately tied to the overall ecology of the aquatic environments in which they're found. Terrestrial materials like soils, leaves, and bits of decomposing botanical materials become an important component of the substrate and add to the biological function and diversity. Now, there's a whole science around aquatic substrates and their morphology, their formulation and accumulation. I don't present, pretend to know an iota about it other than skimming some marine biology and hydrology books and papers from time to time. However, merely exploring the information available on the tropical aquatic habitats that we love so much even just looking hard and you know long and hard at some good underwater pics of them can give you a lot of really good ideas. How do these materials find their way into aquatic ecosystems? Well, in some areas, particularly streams which run through rainforests and stuff, 
the substrates are simply a soil of some sort. A finer, darker colored sediment, sediment or a soil is not uncommon. And these materials can profoundly influence the water chemistry based on ionic, mineral, and physical concentrations of materials that are dissolved in the water. It varies based on water velocities and stuff like that. Meandering, you know, lowland rivers maintain their sediment loads by continually resuspending and depositing materials within their channels. That's a key point when we consider how these materials arrive and stay in the aquatic ecosystems. And then there's forest floors. They're fascinating ecosystems in their own right, yet even more compelling when they're flooded. And what accumulates on dry forest floors, you might ask? Well, branches, stems, leaves, and other materials from trees and shrubs. When the waters return, these formerly terrestrial materials become an integral part of the now aquatic environment. This is really, really important to think of when we aquascape or contemplate, you know, what, you know, what botanical materials we're going to use, you know, like stems and branches and stuff like that. The impact on both function and aesthetics in an aquarium, yes, what we call functional aesthetic, rears its ugly head again. There's no rhyme or reason as to what, you know, how stuff orients, you know, the way it, it does underwater. That's the other thing that, to think about. I mean, branches just sort of fall off trees. It's a process initiated either by rain or wind and just land wherever, which means that we as hobbyists would be perfectly okay just sort of tossing materials in and walking away. Now, I've done this before. It's sort of an evolution of my thinking. I wouldn't normally think of it, but lately in my last few tanks, it's more of like just cram the stuff in there, get it to stay down in a reasonable fashion, walk away. Now, I know this is actually aquascaping heresy. Not one serious aquascaper would ever do that, right? Well... I'm not so sure they wouldn't. I mean, look at nature. I mean, what's wrong with sort of randomly scattering stems, twigs, branches, and stuff like that in your aquascape? It's a near-perfect replication of what actually happens in nature. Now, again, I realize that glass or acrylic box is not, you know, nature. And there's things like scale and ratio and all that gobbledygook that hardcore, you know, hardcore scaping snobs will hit you over the head with and whatever. But nature, honestly, my response to that, nature doesn't give a shit about competition, scapers, rules, ratios, and all that kind of stuff. And nature's pretty damn inspiring, right? There's a beauty in the brutal reality of randomness. I mean, sure, the position of stones in an Iwagumi is beautiful, but it's hardly what I describe as natural. We talk a lot about microhabitats in nature, little areas of tropical habitats where unique physical, environmental, and biological characteristics converge based on a set of factors found in the locale. Factors which determine not only <clears throat> excuse me, how they look, but how they function as well. The complexity and the additional microhabitats they create are compelling and interesting, and they're very useful for sheltering baby fishes, you know, breeding fishes like Epistogramma, Posilocarax, and you know, dicrosis, etc., etc., etc. And I think, again, that's something that we have to think about. These things are very common. These fishes are very common in these type of habitats. Why? Because they offer what they need. Small root bundles and twigs are not traditionally items you find at the local fish store or even online. I mean, you can, but there hasn't been a huge amount of demand for them in the aquascaping world until recently. Although I hear twigs are getting more and more popular with serious aquascapers for what they call detailed work. So this bodes well for those of us with less artistic, more functional intentions, right? Except we don't glue shit together. Uh-oh, mini rant coming on, I think. <laughs> when I see aquascapers glue wood together, it makes me want to barf. 
I know I'm a total ass for feeling that way, but it's incredibly lame. Just fit the shit together with leverage and gravity like your grandparents did or keep looking for that perfect piece. Seriously, you don't need to glue, you know, wood to make it look cool. You're not a reefer gluing coral frags to rock. There's no need to do this. Just relax and put it together as best as nature will allow and walk away. Okay, micro rant over. But let's get back to discussing natural materials, how we've come to include them in our tanks just a little bit more as you can see the evolution and change in our thinking. Like roots, for example, in flooded forests, roots are generally found in the very top layers of the soil where the most minerals are. In fact, in some areas, uh, studies shown that as much as 99% of the root mass in these habitats was in the top 20 centimeters of substrate. Low nutrient availability in the Amazonian forest is partially the reason for this. And since much of that root mass becomes submerged during seasonal inundation, it becomes obvious that this is a unique habitat that we can replicate. So look, ecological reasons aside, what are some things we as hobbyists can take away from this stuff? Well, this was a change here. We can embrace the fact that most of these finer materials will function in our aquariums just like they do in nature, sequestering sediments, retaining substrate, and recruiting epiphytic materials which fishes will forage, hide, and spawn among. Functional aesthetics. And let's talk about preparation a bit, talking about things that have evolved and changed in our world. I'm in a phase in my aquarium career with regards to botanicals in which I feel it's less and less necessary to worry about extensively preparing my botanical materials for use in my tanks. I know you're gasping, right? In essence, my main preparation technique is to simply rinse the items briefly in fresh water, followed by a boil until they're saturated and stay submerged. It's less and less about cleaning them and more and more about getting them to stay down in my aquariums. And to be perfectly honest, if the materials would actually sink immediately and stay down, I think my preparation would simply consist of a good rinse. What's the reason for this evolution of my preparation technique? Well, part of it's because I've started to realize that virtually every botanical item which I use in my work is essentially clean, that is, not polluted or otherwise contaminated. Generally, most of the items I use may simply have some dirt on their surfaces, maybe some insect uh, bird droppings, whatever. I typically won't use items that have bird droppings or insect eggs or whatever, you know, ob obvious contaminants unless I can get them off easily. But the reality is in over 20 years of playing with botanicals, I simply cannot attribute a single fish death to the use of improperly prepared botanical materials. It's really more about the sourcing to me than anything else. Naturally collected materials, air or sun dried over time are just not an issue. However, when you obtain materials from unvetted sources, you can't be sure of what their original intended use was. For years, the hack that I've seen with smart hobbyists was to purchase dried materials from craft stores, you know, seed pods and stuff like that. And these are the people I've seen have the most issues with, you know, these killed my, my tank. The problem is that the materials that are intended to be used in craft projects are typically chemically preserved or treated with varnishes or other materials. And these are simply deadly to aquatic life. We know this. Um, there's no argument there. So to save a few dollars, you end up killing your entire aquarium. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. That's not experimentation. That's being a cheap idiot. Sorry. <laughs> and that's like, I know it sounds a little crassly commercial, but don't you don't have to buy your stuff from me or for that matter, any of the other vendors out there. Go collect it. Feel free to experiment with all sorts of carefully collected natural materials. But I would simply avoid purchasing them from sources which you cannot thoroughly vet. The price of these kind of hacks literally can be the death of your fishes. Now, another reason I'm less anal about preparation of my botanicals and wood and stuff is that these materials contain a lot of organic materials, which are likely catalysts for ecological processes. 
I know that's a bit vague and oddly unscientific, but it does make sense when you think about it. Organics, and you say that in air quotes, are simply incorporated into the aqueous environment and they help foster the growth of a variety of organisms from fungi to bacteria, biofilms, and more. In my humble opinion, they're helpful to create an underwater ecology in your aquarium, sort of like little seed bombs of ecodiversity. It's no longer a concern of mine that the botanical being added to my aquariums has to be completely or an essentially sterile condition. Ecology is the primary motivation for me when it comes to adding botanicals to my tanks, specifically helping to foster an underwater ecology, which will provide the inhabitants with supplemental food and nutrient processing. So trying to keep these things impeccably clean when setting up an ecology first botanical method aquarium is downright counterproductive, right? And I have a hunch that a lot of our fear of introducing extraneous stuff into our tanks via botanicals was as a result of my excessive paranoia back in 2015 in our earliest days when I was very concerned about some hobbyist simply dumping a bunch of our fresh botanicals into his or her tank and ending up with, well, what, with what? A tank with a little bit of turbidity, hmm, darkly tinted water, some fungal and biofilm encrusted seed pods and leaves, detritus from their tissues. What, what exactly was it? All things that we've come not only to, to, to accept, but to expect and to even celebrate as a normal part of our practice. Now, sure, you don't want to add a ton of stuff to an existing tank for fear of bacterial bloom that can consume the, the available oxygen in your tank, compete with the fishes, and literally kill them. I get that. That's totally different. But to see life coming from a result of additions of botanicals is not a bad thing. And it's something that we're now understanding and we're coming to accept overall as a community. I mean... Man, there's literally an explosion of hashtags that people are using on Instagram weekly celebrating shit that I used to have to beat you over the head about to convince you to be normal. Detritus Thursday, Fungal Friday. It makes me want to laugh. But isn't this stuff what you see in wild aquatic habitats? Well, none of these things are bad. We're beyond these concerns that were partially rooted in fear and the other part in our desire to fit in with the mainstream hobby crowd's aesthetic preferences. We finally accepted that our normal is very different from almost every other hobby specialty's view of normal. My development, my use, and marketing of our nature baseline of sedimented substrates a couple of years back reflected another big step in my growing confidence about what is normal in our world. These substrates are filled with materials which will simply make your water turbid for a while. And we don't recommend any sort of preparation before using them. You dump them in. Your tank's going to get cloudy for days. It will. Absolutely part of the process. I remember a lot of sleepless nights, discussions with, you know, Johnny Ciotti and my friend Jake Adam uh, before launching this product and just convincing myself that it's okay to convince fellow hobbyists to relax a bit about this stuff and to embrace it in exchange for the manifold benefits of utilizing more truly natural substrate materials. The entire botanical method aquarium movement has been and likely will continue to be an exercise in stepping out of our hobby comfort zones on a regular basis, trying out ideas which have long been contrary to mainstream aquarium practice and philosophy, ideas and practices which question and challenge the status quo and seem to go against a century of aquarium work in favor of embracing the way nature's done things for, I don't know, eons. It's a big ask, but you keep accepting it and we've all grown together as a result. Another seismic shift, at least in my head anyways, is my acceptance that leaves are leaves. Yeah, seriously, this sounds heretical too, right? But whether they come from the rainforest of Borneo or the mountains of West Virginia, leaves are essentially similar to each other. Sure, some look different or perhaps might have different 
concentrations of compounds within their tissues, yet they're all fundamentally the same. They perform the same function for the tree that they come from, and they behave similarly when submerged in water. A katsapa leaf from Malaysia, jackfruit from India, or live oak leaf from Southern California are more alike than they are dissimilar. Other than having slightly different concentrations of tannins, and even that's possibly minimal, a leaf is a leaf. To convince ourselves otherwise is kind of funny, actually. I did for a long time. I was 100% convinced that the leaves I was painstakingly sourcing from remote corners of the globe were somehow better than our native North American, you know, leaves like magnolia or live oak or whatever. The reality is that, other than some exotic sounding names of morphology that might be different or a good story about where they'd come from, the advantages of most exotic leaves over domestically sourced leaves or leaves from wherever you come from are really likely minimal at best. Trust me, no catapa leaves find their way into tributaries of the Orinoco River. It's ficus, it's javia, uh, various palms, etc. But not catapa, not guava, or even jackfruit. And these are come from exotic tropical places, but we're sort of saying, yeah, they go well in the tropical ecosystem and you know that you're trying to represent. If they did, they likely impact the water chemistry or, or ecology no differently than the native leaves, or for that matter, if you threw in a bunch of live oak leaves. Leaves are leaves. In fact, ecologically, they essentially do the same thing, just on a different timetable, the way they fall. Trees in dis tropical deciduous forests lose their leaves in the dry season and regrow them in the rainy season, whereas temperate deciduous forests, uh, like, like we have here in North America, have trees that lose their leaves in the fall and regrow them in the spring. In the moist forest close to the equator, the climate's warm, there's plenty of rainfall year-round, and in this environment, there's no reason for the trees to drop their leaves at any particular time of year, so the forest stays green year-round. Trees from temperate climate zones lose their leaves regularly during certain times of the year and then regrow them, and they must take a, a fairly precise cue from their environment. In the mid and high latitudes, if trees put out leaves too early in the year, these will be damaged by frost and valuable nutrients would be lost because the tree can't easily reclaim nutrients from a frost, you know, frostbitten leaf. Anyway, we'll probably more than you want to know about leaves on trees, but they perform similar functions for their trees regardless of where they come from. The morphological differences are often subtle and sometimes inconsistent. It's long been recognized by science that tropical forests are dominated by evergreen trees that have leaves with what they call complete margins, whereas trees of temperate forests tend to have deciduous leaves with toothed or lobed margins. Maybe leaves from different habitats or environments look a bit different and fall at different times of the year, but in the end, that's really about it. I'm sure that this is not an absolute, for sure. There are trees which have leaves with higher concentrations of tannins, etc. than others. There's some that maybe are even toxic. However, by and large, there are not all that many compelling arguments to favor exotic leaves from faraway places over the ones you can source locally, other than the fact that they come from faraway places with cool names. Sure, some botanist somewhere could school me on my overgeneralization of this, but in the aquarium world, I'm not certain one could successfully prove that you must use, you know, I'm making this up, pango-pango leaves from Cameroon to be successful with a botanical method aquarium. Now, could one argue that there are some subtle chemical benefits to, for fishes which come from these regions by using the local botanicals in their tanks? Maybe, sure. But by and large, I just don't think so anymore. Planet Earth, there's only so many ways to make a tree, right? So as hobbyists and vendors, I think we need to rethink this. As a hobbyist and a vendor myself, I'm not completely engrossed by chasing every exotic sounding leaf out there anymore. I know that's a few groans coming from our audience when I say that, but it's going to impact the way I'm going to do business in the future when we kind of do our 10 and 3.0 pretty soon. 
I may offer limited quantities of the big three in the future and maybe some others, but I feel less and less compelled to do so. Trying to be the aquarium world's catalog of tropical leaves for aquariums long ago lost its luster amid the realities of supply chain issues, unreliable suppliers, tariffs, and, you know, other stuff like that. Let other vendors chase the dollars. I'm going to chase my ideas and I'm going to use whatever materials I see fit for purpose, regardless of their origin, and I'm going to offer them to you. Again, consistently changing, persistently evolving. It's kind of a mantra around here. We're in an amazing time right now. For the first time in years, I personally feel that the idea of botanical method aquariums has moved out of its obscure fringe culture like parking spot in the fish world and into the light of the mainstream. And it's all because of you. Sure, many of you were playing with you know black water tanks before, but your experience, if it was anything like mine, you were probably viewed as a mildly eccentric hobbyist playing with a little side thing, a passing fancy that you'd eventually you know get over. Well, I think that it's changing a lot right now. I think most of us aren't over this, and it's not a side fancy. We're seeing a community of what was once a widely scattered group of hobbyists starting to come together and share ideas, techniques, pictures, inspiration, and with other equally obsessed hobbyists. This has been an amazing thing to me, and to be able to witness it firsthand is really incredible. It's been a renaissance of sorts for this once-neglected area of the hobby. Another thing that I find interesting is that we as a community are viewing our aquariums as habitats more than ever before we seem to have broken through that mindset of creating aquariums only based on an aesthetic we like and you know you know that that we like and fitting the fishes into it as opposed to creating aquariums with specialized habitats for specific fishes it's a kind of a mindset shift and, and we're not afraid to make little detours small changes and not all of them need to be intentional. Things happening in unexpected ways are what can propel the hobby forward. Everything doesn't have to follow a plan. A little detour can be amazing. However, if you're looking for a specific result and go too far in a different direction, it's often a recipe for frustration for those not prepared for it. Sure, many of us can simply go with the flow and accept the changes that we made as part of the process, but in a course with a very pure vision and course, will work through this self-created deviation until he or she gets the destination. Many find this completely frustrating. Others find this a compelling part of the creative process in aquariums. Pretty much every major breakthrough I've encountered in my hobby practice has been the result of me breaking pattern and trying something fairly radically new. You know, a big remake of an aquarium, trying a new manipulation of the environment, a new material, whatever. And of course, the thing which maintains the breakthrough, well... I've always had this thing about repetition and doing the same stuff over and over again in my aquarium practice. It's one of the real truisms to me about fish keeping. Once you've gotten in a groove in terms of like husbandry, it's great to just do the same thing over and over again, you know, water exchanges, whatever. Consistency in that regard. Yeah, I beat the shit out of that idea fairly regularly, I know. Now notice I'm not talking about doing the same thing over and over and over again when it comes to ideas. Nope, I'm of the opinion that you should do all sorts of crazy things when it comes to concepts and experiments. One thing that was sort of experimental for years in our little world was the idea of not removing botanical materials from our aquariums. You know, flat out siphoning this stuff out, lest something, you know, happen in the water in our aquariums. It was a big deal about, I don't know, 20 years ago. People thought I was crazy for talking about leaving leaves and botanicals in the tank until they fully decomposed. I mean, they thought I was crazy for just throwing botanicals and leaves in the tank anyway. But I was told that if I didn't remove this stuff, all sorts of horrifying outcomes would ensue. Yet in the back of my mind, I thought to myself, if the whole idea of botanical method aquariums is to facilitate an ecosystem within the tank, 
wouldn't removing a significant source of the ecology, you know, decomposing leaves and botanical detritus, be more negative than leaving it in the tank to be worked by the resident life forms at various levels? So I left the stuff in. Never had any bad results. I really wasn't that surprised, to be honest. I figured that this would actually be beneficial to my aquariums. My theory was that steeped in the mindset that you've created this little ecosystem and that if you start removing a significant source of somebody's food or for that matter their home, there's bound to be a net loss of biota. And this could lead to a disruption of the very biological processes that we're trying to foster. Okay, it was a theory, but I think I'm onto something. Maybe? Yeah. So like here's my theory again in a little more detail. Simply look at the botanical method aquarium, like any aquarium of course, as a little microcosm with processes and life forms dependent upon each other for food, shelter, and other aspects of their existence. And I really believe that the environment of this type of aquarium, because it relies on botanical materials, is more significantly influenced by the amount and composition of materials to operate the system successfully over time, just like in natural aquatic ecosystems. So changes are good. And detritus, the name, you know, main nemesis of the aquarium hobby, I don't think it's all that bad, really. It's all about not simply accepting the generally held hobby truisms as gospel in every single situation. Experimenting and considering stuff in context is really important. Change and variation is inevitable and important in the hobby. Being open-minded about things is vital. The processes of evolution, change, and disruption which occur in the natural aquatic habitats and in our aquariums are important on so many levels. They encourage ecological diversity, create new niches, and revitalize the biome. Changes can't be, you know, they can be viewed as frightening, damaging events, or we can consider them necessary processes which contribute to the very survival of aquatic ecosystems. Think about that the next time you hesitate to experiment with that new idea or to not play a hunch that you might have. Remember that there's always a bit of discomfort, trepidation, and sure risk when you make changes or conduct bold experiments. Goes with the territory, really. However, once you get out of that comfort zone, you're really living, and the fear will give way to exhilaration and maybe even triumph. Because in the aquarium hobby, the bleeding edge is when you're constantly changing and potentially persistently, patiently evolving. Stay brave, stay persistent, stay curious, stay thoughtful, stay creative, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tin and Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.